Okay, riddle me this. Uh, what do skydiving, tattoos, ultra hot spicy foods, and crocodile wrestling have in common? Short lifespan, did I hear that? Uh, well, they're, they're, all, they're all potentially painful. Um, they, they, they're all very risky and, and dangerous, and uh, if they don't sound attractive to you in any way, shape, or form, you're probably normal, verging on normal. But then the weird thing is, the weird thing is, every, every time you turn around, there's somebody coming to you going, oh, I just did, I just ate a ghost pepper. <laughs> okay. It was incredible. Oh, it killed me, but man, after it was so good. I'm just, woo, you know, and you're like, okay, okay, whatever it might be. And, and, and you're like, it's hard for me to completely relate to that, but yet we see it all around us all the time. Somebody's doing something that you think I would never, never take the risk. They do it and they come back, woo, I'm having a good time. Yeah? Could suffering for Christ be like that? I mean, could, could it possibly be that, that suffering for the gospel could be an acquired taste, that we could actually come to a place where we rejoice in it. I mean, this is the question I'm asking you today. Usually I just make a statement. Today I'm gonna ask it as a question to try to engage you to think seriously about it. Is it truly possible to rejoice in suffering as a Christian for the gospel, for the name of Christ? Is that possible? You say, well, of course it must be possible. It says so in the word of God. It says it over and over. And we, how many times do you come into this exact thought as it's presented here today? And yet, you know, it's kind of like, you know, Steve Irwin, God rest his soul, could, could wrestle crocodiles, but that's not for me. The apostle Paul could suffer for the sake of the gospel, but that's not for me. And I want God to know that because he's not allowed to send me Suffering, he, he should know that. I just want to go on record saying, right? Isn't that where our hearts are at? On a, you know, we can affirm one thing biblically, but in our hearts we're like, but God, that's not, that's, I don't fit into that particular crowd of people who suffer well. So, yeah. Um, I believe it's possible, but let's look at this. There's four conditions that Paul kind of enunciates here, four conditions in which it is possible, I believe, scripturally to suffer for the gospel. Um, look at the verse, now I rejoice, this is the one where I got stuck right in the middle because of my, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. Condition number one, we can rejoice in suffering when it's for the church. And Paul says it like three or four different ways here. He says, for your sake. He says, for the sake of the body, the church. And then he says, for you. So there are about four ways I count there where Paul is saying this suffering that I go through as a result of my ministry, this suffering is for the sake of his body. He compares, you, know, you say, well, where, when did Paul suffer for the church? It's a dumb question, yeah? When did he not, it would be easier just to say, when were those little vacation periods that he had where he wasn't in some way? I don't think he, from the moment he took on that role, I don't think there was a moment where you couldn't say in some way, shape, or form, he was, in fact, suffering for the church. Because he talks about, he goes through all of the litany, and you know the shipwreck and the stonings and things like that, but he talks about his anxiety for the church, his, his constant concern for the church, when he's writing to the Colossians, where is he? He's in a Roman prison, and he's anxious for the church. 
He's thinking about them and the fact that they're being carried into these, into these false teachings. So Paul's, Paul's always suffering, yet it says that he rejoiced in that. And if you ask the question how, well, it's kind of on the face of it, isn't it? That it's the fact that he's suffering for something he loves. It's one thing to suffer needlessly, but when you know you're suffering for something that really matters to you, takes on a whole different realm, does it? I mean, you can literally say, I rejoice that I was able to suffer for that, for that thing or that person that I truly and genuinely love. Think about uh, Jacob. You remember Jacob with the two wives and the two sisters, you know, that whole thing, which always seems a little hinky looking back on it now. We wouldn't recommend it for a New Testament Christian, but hey, that's, that's part of the Bible. He, he went to work for his uncle Laban and, and, he, and he fell in love with Rachel and he got Leah, uh, you know, he got tricked into taking Leah and, uh, and then he had, he'd already worked seven years for that. And then he has to work another seven years for Rachel. But do you remember what it says there? It says, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Pastors and elders should love the church enough to be able to suffer for the sake of the flock. It's right there in the job description. It's right there. Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock. He's speaking to elders. Remember, he's meeting with the elders there at Miletus from Ephesus. The whole flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers and to care for the church which he obtained with his own blood. Joy and suffering is part of the pastoral ministry. That, that is just, yeah, it's just written into it. Those that are pastors, elders, you know, they're the same thing biblically. The, we usually just use the term pastor to mean the guy we pay to full time give himself to that. But pastors and elders, it is just written into it that we are to love and care for the flock even into and including suffering and if you're a member of a church if you're a member of a church i would say yes you too first of all i would actually say um the elders and leaders do suffer so don't make their job worse than it already is (laughs) you know that's one thing you can do as a church member you say jay don't make things up it says that in hebrews doesn't it it says that you're to submit to the, to, to the leaders and, and, and not to make their, it a burden for them because what profit is there for you if you do that? You remember that? So there's that part. There's the first do no harm uh, kind of a, uh, attitude. But at the same time, all Christians who commit to the gospel and engage in the life of the church will suffer as well. You say, well, how? Well, there's, there's a myriad of ways that, that, that you suffer. When you give of yourself tirelessly to the work of the ministry, those are hours you could have spent, I don't know, sunning on a beach somewhere or whatever it is you do for recreation. You could, you could be about those things, but you're devoting yourself, you're giving yourself, you're giving up something, you're suffering something. Yeah, maybe as it was, I just was talking to a young person today and uh, there was kind of a budding romance uh, possibility there, but because of the gospel, because of where this person is on, on doctrine, it, like, nope, just gonna, just gonna let that pass. That's, that's a form of suffering. But when we suffer for the church, when we suffer for the people of God, it is a good thing that we can rejoice in. At least I would say so. Now you have to ask yourself, is that true for you? Do you look at the church as that precious? The sad thing is a lot of Christians don't even see the necessity of being part of a church. Even though the Bible is utterly and totally clear that that's where the Christian belongs. He belongs within the body. 
And if we suffer, if we suffer along with the church, we should be able to rejoice. Okay, condition number two, we can rejoice in suffering when it is with Christ. Paul says something really weird here. How many saw that and thought, well, that's weird? Sorry, slurped there a little bit. Not a one of you, some of you. Okay, some of you read something there and you thought, well, that was a little troubling. For those that just let it pass. He says, and in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Now, what does that mean? How could there be anything lacking in Christ's affliction? We know throughout the whole New Testament that that the gospel is not about Christ plus anything else. It is Christ, Christ's death on the cross. His blood of the cross, we just looked at this, I think, last time, wasn't it? His blood of the cross, his his body of flesh given on, on the cross, that was the payment to bring us to God, to reconcile us. The whole means of our justification is Christ. So what is Paul trying to say there? Well, the word affliction is not the, the other words that we would normally associate with suffering, especially the suffering of Christ for our sins. It's actually the word tribulation or affliction. It's a different, if it's, it's a different take. Think about it this way. Do you remember when Paul was on the road to Damascus? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty basic, yeah. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? I'll, I'll start it. He says, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Paul's like, I'm not persecuting you. How am I perse- who are you? Who, who are you, Lord, that I'm persecuting you? And it's like, I'm Jesus. You know, and he was talking about his body. He was talking about the church. Paul was a persecutor of the people of God, and Jesus regarded that suffering as his, his suffering, his affliction. So Paul now has gone from the persecutor to the persecuted in the name of Jesus. He becomes the one along with the rest of the church that is bearing an aspect of the afflictions of Christ. And believe it or not, when we come to Christ and and we start to bear that burden and we start to suffer for him, we can know the fellowship of his suffering. That we can say in one sense that we are, because what it's really kind of, the way I understand it, it's like there's a total quantity of all the afflictions that will come to those who are in Christ. So in Christ, his body throughout all time, there's a certain... God, I don't even know how you quantify one person's pain and suffering, but God, I believe, has it all quantified. And he knows the exact... Like, he knows the sparrows that fall. He knows exactly what that is. And in, in our way, each one of us who are in Christ, we are filling out that affliction. The affliction of Christ of his body and Paul says something that, that is so helpful here he says in Philippians 3:10 he says my aim is to know him to experience the power of his resurrection to share in his suffering you see that so to share in Christ's suffering is it, this huge privilege we, should, we shouldn't look at it as burdensome or something we would try to avoid at all costs. It's actually considered a privilege of the believer. Think about the apostles when they were persecuted by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. Remember that? Shortly after Pentecost, they'd been warned, don't, don't keep preaching in this name. What did they do? Kept preaching in that name. So they got beaten, and they were sent away, and don't you do that anymore kind of a thing. And what is it? You remember what it says? That they went away rejoicing that they'd been counted worthy to suffer. 
And only for Paul, it seems like it's not just the privilege. I think he gets that. I think he understands that it's a privilege. But I think there's something more to it than that even, in terms of what he's saying in Philippians and here in Colossians. I think he's saying that when we suffer in the name of Christ, there is a sweet, tender fellowship that can be experienced. How many believe that in your heart? At least on paper, you'll believe that. (laughs) I believe... I believe, I've heard people, you know, people that have been persecuted, um, suffered for the name of Christ, they'll often have that, even though they go through excruciating pain sometimes, they'll still come back going, you know, but in that time, the closeness that I felt with Christ, the intensity of that relationship seemed t- more, more tender, more sweet. Think about Stephen, when Stephen got stoned, and Paul had seen that, hadn't he? Just as he's even being stoned through that whole process, he, he looks into heaven and he has that vision where he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. He sees the glory of God. They, they fall upon him and they start stoning him. And in that, in that moment, he just says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he, and he prays for forgiveness for those that did that. Now, how, how does that happen? You know, how, how does that happen? That, that, that people are able to have that. It's the fellowship of his suffering. I think this is a good thought for pastors and, pastors and elders to take to heart. Um, it's also something for every church member to consider their privilege. But how do you get there? How do you get there? It is hard. I don't think we get there sort of naturally, that we just gravitate toward that. I believe it happens as we contemplate what God says in his word. Because how do you pray for people that are abusing you, that are causing you pain? How do you do that? And I mean, I think there's even a line of thought today in the church among some people that's like, well, you don't, you don't, you don't have, you don't. How do you, how do you pray for people that, that are, are, are angry and hateful and resentful toward you? How do you count it joy to suffer for Jesus' sake? I think it only comes as we contemplate the word of God and agree with it and lay that out for us. Now, Should you pray, Lord, give me all the suffering I can possibly have because I want a sweet, sweet fellowship with you? I'm not even sure the Lord would think that was normal. He might send you to a therapist. Um, (laughs) Paul doesn't even say that. Man, when he says, I I want to know the fellowship of suffering, I don't think he's saying, Lord, pour more on than you've already done. I I, I I think my prayer would be, Lord, in the pain and suffering that you've ordained for me, let me know within that a greater sense of the fellowship of your suffering. Paul reminds the Philippians elsewhere, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his name. So somehow, in agreement with the scripture, we have to come to the place where we go, You know what? That's a gift. It's a gift to share in the suffering of Christ is actually intended as a gift. It's a gift from him. Okay, condition number three. We can rejoice in suffering when it is our ministry. When it's our ministry. Paul says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So the joyful suffering of verse 24 flows right into into verse 25, where Paul then kind of lays out how that connects with his ministry. To be a minister means what? To be a, does anybody know what the biblical word minister actually means? 
It's a servant. It's a servant. You know, there are two diametrically opposed kinds of servants in the world. We call them what? In, in our culture, we call a servant an, um, an employee, right? An employee. And uh, there's two kinds. I don't know if you've noticed. Have you noticed there's two basic kinds of employees in the world? You go into a store and, and you ask a question and the person doesn't make eye contact and they go, I don't know. You're a hardware store. You don't, you don't know where the wing nuts are? Oh, I know where the wing nut is, man. Yeah, there's that kind of employee, you know, the one with the attitude that you're, you're not, they're not paying me enough to engage with you and talk to you. I don't care. I just have to get so many hours in. If you bring it up here, I'll swipe it across the scanner and goodbye to you, sir. There's that kind. And then there's the kind that's like wing nuts. Well, that's an excellent question, sir. Uh, Charlie, do you know where the wing nut, you know, and, they, and they, they, they go to whatever trouble, and they'll walk you over there, and they'll, 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 they'll find them, and oh, here's some wing nuts. What are, two totally different kinds of servants. Which one goes home satisfied at the end of the day that life is worth living? I think, I, I think you know. Well, there, there are three pieces of, of Paul's sense of his, of his servanthood, and Paul really is that second kind. Uh, of servant. There's three aspects of this. First of all, he knows he's a servant. He knows he's a servant. He knows that he's not paid to think. <laughs> I mean, Paul was quite the thinker, to be, to be sure, but he, but he was thinking God's thoughts after him. He, if, if Jesus said to him, I will show him all that he must suffer for my name, then then that was it. Then, okay, that's what being a servant of Christ then means. It means that I will suffer, and he just takes it in. Secondly, he calls it a stewardship. How many know what a stewardship is? When you hear the biblical word stewardship, we don't use it a lot in modern English, but we, you do hear it. So steward is kind of different than just an employee. That kind of takes you up into the level almost of what manage. We might call it management. It's somebody who's been entrusted with the whole operation, with the property, with the resources, with, with, with the money, all of those things. And their job is to make sure in the place of the owner who can't be there, they're there to make sure everything runs and there's profit and there's return on the investment. Look at what Paul writes to the Corinthians about his job. He says, this is how one should regard us. Interestingly, we get both words, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. How can you tell if a steward, and we've moved from servant to steward, but how can you tell if a, a steward is actually faithful? He's faithful if he has his master's interest at heart when he cares for the master's property as if it were his very own. When Jesus gave the parable about himself as the good shepherd, what does he say about those who went before him? Do you remember? He says they were all hirelings. Hirelings. You go, what is a hireling? Well, it's a day laborer. That person went out, was given a job. Hey, have you ever herded sheep? No, but how hard can it be? Okay, here's a buck. Go out and watch the sheep. Now, when that guy sees the wolves and, and the lions show up, he's like, yeah, okay, I'll give the dollar back if I have to. I, I'm not getting paid enough to take on, you know, wild beasts. That's not part of it. They were hirelings. 
but a, but a, but a steward would put himself out there, would care, you know, in in a different way. And Paul sees himself caring about the church in that on that level. And the third aspect of his ministry is that it was given to him by God. Paul's stewardship is a gracious gift of God. It says. He counted it a privilege to be an apostle, to go about sharing the gospel with the world. It was his gift, and if Jesus lay suffering upon him as part of that gift, then he regarded the suffering that went with the gospel as a gift from God as well. This is a a concept which is super important for church leaders. Um, We're not given our ministry, and this is, you know, this, I get on a hobby horse with his stuff, and that's just how it is, I guess, but Something happened over the last 50 years in, in the American church where the church became this, this just ripe place for men with great um, yeah, grandiosity to come in and try to make it all about them. For, almost as if it's a place for men to feel better about themselves by you know, becoming a pastor and building a big show and, and attracting a lot of attention and being told how successful they are, whatever the case may be. And that is, that is not the role of a steward. Not the role of a steward. To pastors and elders, I would say, this lays out pretty clear. When we seek to do church, not for our personality, not for our aggrandizement, but when we simply seek to do church as the scripture lays it out, there will be suffering. There will be suffering. And I tell you what, if I've suffered at all through the years as a, as a Christian pastor, I would say this is, this is kind of ground zero. Because well-intentioned people will come along invariably, through my years of ministry, I've experienced this so much, you know, people will come along and say, hey, you know, at my last church, um, we had, a, we had go-kart rides in the middle of the sanctuary, and boy, that really brought the kids out, and uh, you can imagine just how attractive that was to people, and the church was thousands and thousands of people. I really think we need a go-kart. Uh, tra- okay, nobody ever said a go You get my point, though, right? Let's make this Barnum and Bailey circus. It's the church. We can do whatever we want to do, just as long as we get people in, and then you can give them the gospel, but don't give it to them all at once. Give it to them in little pieces so that they don't know quite what they're getting and that kind of a thing. And it's like, I'm sorry, we're not at liberty to, to do whatever we want to with the church. God has made these things reasonably clear in his word what that looks like. And the, the pain comes when people go, you know what? You're just stuck in the mud, you know, and I'm out of here. And they, and, they, and they brush the dust from their feet. Pastors and elders should not do their ministry to make people happy. Let me, let me repeat that, because sometimes you just, just like getting it off your chest, right? Pastors and elders are not in their role to make people happy. If you look back at the Old Testament and you look at Saul, that was Saul's chief problem. Do you realize that? His, his big personality flaw was that he, he had an inferiority complex, which is, you see this through several aspects of his life, and so he was absolutely just bent on the idea of people liking him, getting the people on his side, loving him, adoring him. And he did that to a fault, and he did that to the point of disobeying God. That's not stewardship. That's not seeing the ministry as a gift of God. Now, I'm not saying that there can't be legitimate differences between how one person sees the Bible as to doing church versus someone else. But when people just do whatever pragmatically feels like it's going to work, 
that's, I can't go along with that. And, and I don't think we should. We don't want to try to copy the world. We don't want to do what we're doing just to please the world or to, or to please people with, with wrong ideas. The pastors and elders have to accept that there is suffering that will go with this because you cannot be a people pleaser and also please God. Seems to me like there's a shearing force that happens between, if, if you're set upon doing the word of God, it's required of a steward to be found faithful. So that's your allegiance, right? Who are you faithful to? To the Lord. And you've got that, and then on the other hand, you've got people who come with all kinds of ideas. This will make us happy. This will make us happy. This will make us happy. You know? That's, if you try to live in that middle piece, it's going to destroy you. You've got to just get over that, right? Church members, are you willing to trust the Lord in the church? If the leadership is seeking to follow the scriptures, if they're doing a reasonably competent, faithful work of preaching the word, of living out and preaching the gospel, of shepherding the flock according to God's word, of following the old paths, if you will, but they're not, if you don't have every bell and whistle that you think would be nice, are you going to be supportive of that? Will you suffer uh, that for the sake of the king? Do you want stewardship or do you want pragmatic razzmatazz? Because most of the time those two things won't go together as far as I can see. All right, got that off my chest. These pastors, they get cranky when they, once they've told people they're leaving. Um, condition number four. We can rejoice in suffering when it is near the finish line. When it's near the finish line. Paul finishes this out with the words, to make the word of God fully known. Now that's the ESV. They're taking some translational liberty there because the wording in Greek is kind of confusing. Just a little like, hmm, what's he trying to say here? Uh, the NET is much closer to the, how the wording is. Um, he says, in order to complete the word of God. In order to complete the word of God. What does that mean? What is Paul trying to say there? What Paul seems to be saying is that he's enduring this suffering joyfully for the sake of God's people in the stewardship and the ministry that Christ has given us. Suffering with Christ. He's, he's doing that while either bringing the word of God to the end of his life you know, of, of continuing to proclaim the word of God until he dies or until he reaches the ends of the earth. Whichever comes first for Paul. Paul's not picky, you know? He's just, he's got that end in sight. Does Paul know he's gonna die like in about two years from the time he's writing this? Two, three years, roughly? I don't think he does. He'd made plans to go to Spain. Did he get there? I don't know. There's not a long window of time in there where he could have gotten there. But he's still making plans, but yet he does this with the finish line in mind. Paul uses the race metaphor a lot in Scripture. Consider this. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul lived with the idea of there being an end point. Like, he's in it for the hall, for the whole hall, but he, but he knows that there will be an end, whatever that may be for him. Have any of you ever been in a, a race of any kind, distance race? How many have run a distance race at some point? Oh, there's more of you than that, I bet, yeah. 
Do you remember looking for those mile markers or kilometer markers, depending on the case may be? You're running, but you want to know where you're at. How far have I gotten? Oh, half a kilometer. That's good. Okay, how many more does that leave? But at least you saw it. Like, they had it marked there, and that's a, that's a good thing. It just kind of keeps you mentally aware, like, okay, I can keep this up. But what if you got in, what if you were running a marathon, God forbid, but what if you were, and you're out there, and, and every mile marker was confused. Like, you got to the first mile marker, and it said mile three, and you're like, woohoo, I'm making time. And then the next one said mile one. And, and, and then the next one had a question mark, uh, or order <laughs> a picture of Waldo on, on one of them. And you're like, what is going on? on and you're looking at your app and and you get to the 26.2 mile mark on the app and there is no finish line in sight and the people runners are just stretched on for miles what would you think I'd quit I'll just tell you right now I'd be like where are my keys and how do I get back to the parking lot because that, that would just be so crushing Paul says man there is there is a there is a ribbon that stretched across the track up there I know where I'm going. I'm going, to, I'm, going, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to keep preaching. I'm going to keep bringing the gospel. You know, and I'm going to complete the word of God. And by that he didn't mean, well, I will say the last word and there won't be any other words ever said. You know, after I'm done, he's saying, man, I'm going to get to the end of it, whatever that looks like for my life as God has ordained and called me. I'm going to see it through. Our suffering for the Lord has a limit. And I think that's helpful. Paul kept straining toward that upward calling when his pain would end, when he would be with glory and see Christ. He would keep doing the work, but he did so with the end in sight. Doesn't that help? We want to endure, as we talked about last time, that whole idea of perseverance. We must persevere. We will persevere. We determine that, that we will, but it's not as though God just goes, oh yeah, there's just nothing but pain you know, in sight as you look ahead. There's nothing but pain for me. And he doesn't say that, does he? Whether you're 15 or 85, you are closer to the end than when you started. You realize that? Yeah, some of us are probably realistically looking at it, coming up a lot faster on us than, than some of the rest. But, it, you know, life is short. You're gonna, if you're 15 right now, you can't believe that. But it's true. It's true. You'll hear people saying that for a while, and then you'll be saying it. That's just, that's just the nature of life. But we must endure, and we can, we can persevere, knowing that the end is in sight, that, we, that God has measured and determined what we will suffer for his sake. But in the end, we will be with him, and we will be with Christ, and every tear will be wiped away from our eye. I could imagine some people might be going, but Jay, you're quitting. I'm not quitting. <laughs> it's not like that. Yes, I, I mean, I will be retiring as a senior pastor in this particular kind of sort of paid uh, position. But uh, I don't regard uh, November of 2024. I want to keep saying that because some people think it's this coming 2024. I don't regard that as the end point. I, you know, it could be, but <laughs> I, don't, I don't see it that way. But, but, um, but it, it will be a transition into other other kinds of avenues of ministry for me. How about you? Can you rejoice? Can you rejoice in suffering? I know it says so in print, but can you actually rejoice in that? Or is that just for this elite group of crocodile wrestling, you know, sorts of people, the people that go around eating ghost peppers? Is, is that just for them, or, or can you adopt this and accept this? When it's for the church, if you're suffering for the sake of the body of Christ, Is that not blessed? 
Is that not a good thing to be able to say, well, I'm suffering, but I'm suffering with and for the church? When it brings a deeper fellowship in the sufferings of Christ, is that not a tender and beautiful thing? When it's your ministry, when you know that it is working through what's, you know, it, you're not having to make it up. It's, it's laid out for you. This is what's been given to you. This is your stewardship. Does that, is that not a, a point of conviction for you? And when it's near the finish line, can we not hold on a little longer and get to that actual finish line? If you don't have this perspective today, if you're not a believer, I feel badly for you because here's the dirty little secret that we've talked about before. Everybody suffers. It's not like, oh, I'm not going to be a Christian because that would mean suffering. (laughs) You're going to suffer. Suffering is just, that's part of the human condition. And a lot of that suffering is, you'll feel like it's senseless. There, There is a call when you come to Christ, and we don't want to try to hide that. Is there joy? Is there eternal life? Absolutely. But the same Jesus who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The same Jesus says, if you come and you follow me, you you must die to yourself. You must take up your cross and follow me. So, So there's both of those things. Come to Christ. Find eternal life. Let go. Whatever it is you're holding on to that you think is so dear, it's not. It's going to be gone at some point anyway. Let go of all and take Christ. Will it be a bed of roses and, and, and just sunny skies on all, you know, all the time? No, no, and, and, and we would be lying if we said so. No, Christians do suffer. And what in, an individual Christian, we're not all going to suffer on the level that Paul suffered. But if we truly take things seriously, there will be suffering in Christ. All we can say is that in the end, there will be glory There will be rest. There will be abundant life. There will be joy with him forever. And there will be joy in in the fellowship of his suffering even now. So we want that for you. We offer that to you in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, we we are not anxious to suffer. And we'd we'd be lying if, if, if we said we were. So I pray, Lord, even as we talked about earlier, that, that, um, the suffering which you have ordained for us would be seen in light of the gospel for the sake of Christ. Lord, just help us to be devoted to, the, to those good things, to love your church, um, to, to, to get deeper into that, that word and be formed by the word such that we can see our suffering in that way and not just as something that we, that we need to hold away from ourselves. Help us to embrace that as even part of your design for our lives. And Lord, in all of that, I pray that, that you would teach us to have joy in the fellowship of your suffering. May we know that even as we are meant to know it. We pray, Lord, that if there's someone here today suffering for their sins, suffering for many other reasons, I pray that they would see the light of the gospel today and that they would take up their cross and come follow Christ, that they by faith would receive and believe upon him today and be saved. We ask in his name, amen.